Welcome back to the Forward Podcast. I'm Lance Armstrong, your host. You're stuck with me this week. You're pretty much stuck with me every week from now on. This week's podcast is an interesting one, a little different than what we usually do. Typically, we either do these interviews in our local studio here in Austin or the gear is mobile, so sometimes we'll take it on the road and set it up and uh, interview people wherever the hell we are. This one uh, was was recorded in front of a live audience at the Texas Tribune Fest. Um, and not only is that different, but it was not an interview with just one person. It's an interview with three people. And it's an interesting panel. So you have Pam Koloff from ProPublica, Mike Hall from Texas Monthly, and Tony Plahetsky from the Austin American Statesman. All three of these people are covering cases, criminal cases, or have covered criminal cases in the past, uh, of people, with the exception of Tony Plahetsky, who's still covering the Greg Kelly case here in Austin, which is, is very much ongoing. And I've made the position very clear on my socials that I, I believe Greg Kelly is innocent. Um, so the others, uh, of course, have, are, have covered cases in the past. Pam Koloff covered a forward podcast along Michael Morton very, very uh, intensely. Uh, Mike Hall covered the Kerry Max Cook case for years and years and years. So these are guys and gals that have covered people, men and women, that are innocent and have said they're innocent. So the juxtaposition of their lives and their stories and my life and my story, well, interesting. But nonetheless, I, I because of my um, experience with Michael Morton and having him on this show, I just I just started following these cases closer and closer, and especially the Greg Kelly case here in Williamson County, just north of Austin. Um, so Evan Smith, the editor of the Texas Tribune, asked me to uh, impanel this uh, group and and interview them uh, live on stage and record it for the Forward podcast. So uh, such an honor to do. Really fascinating to hear not just the stories of these these people that spent. You know, gosh, if you totaled up just the page of notes I'm looking at, you're looking at people that have spent probably close to 100 years in prison for something they didn't do. Uh, and all the while in there because they were up against, a, up against a system that was rigged, it didn't work, they were out to get them. They needed to, uh, they needed to pin it on somebody as soon as they could so the community would calm down. Um, I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, I, I know I was certainly fascinated by what they had to say, but before we get to Pam, Mike, and, and Tony, just a couple things, right quick. I don't know if any, if any of y'all are a fan. This is a this is a podcast I want to do in the future, and most of these I do one on one, and this one was one on three. But I tell you, there's one I watched this new Thirty for Thirty uh, called "What Carter Lost" about Carter High, a high school in Dallas that actually. When I was in high school, our team in my high school, Plano East Senior High, is actually featured in the documentary. We played them in the semifinals of the state championships for football. Uh, it's a new thirty for thirty. You gotta check it out and 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 uh, highly recommend it. I would love to sit with the six athletes who who made the wrong turn and the seventh, Jesse Armstead, who made the right turn. And what a what a contrast in, in the in the final story. You had 21 players on that team that signed Division I con- uh, or pledged to Division I schools, and uh, it all took a twist. And speaking of football, I got to tell you, I saw probably, 
I've seen a lot of football. I love football. I've seen a lot of football in my life, whether it's my son playing high school football, college football, the Longhorns, et cetera, Dallas Cowboys, the, the NFL, whatever. I saw last last Friday night. I saw probably the, one of the best football games I'd ever seen when my son's Westlake High School Shaps played uh, Vandergriff Vipers, and uh, I will say the officiating was shady, but that didn't matter. What matters is Vandergriff stayed in the game. They played a hell of a game. I think my son's team probably underestimated them a little bit. Lo and behold, 36 seconds to go. They are leading by a point. Everybody in the stands is like, what the mm, is happening? And, you know, the Shaps came roaring back. Nakia Watson got the ball, uh, got us down to about the 36 seconds to go. Timeout, kicked the game-winning field goal. But it was just to be there and to watch that entire team just hang in there, stay tough. Congratulations to the to all the Shaps, not just Luke Armstrong, but all his buddies, all his teammates. And here we go. We're 4-0. So uh, thanks for tuning in. Enjoy this uh, uh, this group of people. They're really, really cool, really smart. I enjoyed sitting up there. Uh, and to all the people that came out and watched it live, thank you very much. And to, uh, to Evan Smith and everybody at the Texas Truman, thanks for having us. See you all next week. So I'm Lance Armstrong, and I'm the host of the Forward Podcast. Like I just said in the mic, talking to myself, I've never done one like this. I usually sit at a table and across from somebody, so this is new and exciting for me. Uh, Welcome to the Texas Tribune Fest. Please silence or mute or turn off your telephones. If you'd like to tweet about this, the hashtag is TribFest17. So my guest today, this is... um, uh, interesting. I'll, I'll start with, with Pamela down at the other end, and I'll come across this way. So Pamela graduated from Brown University and made her way to Austin. She worked as a staff writer and later as an executive editor at Texas Monthly. She recently left Texas Monthly to join ProPublica as a senior reporter and writer at large for the New York Times Magazine. Pamela is a six-time National Magazine finalist, including her win for the 2012 uh, piece, The Innocent Man. To her left is Mike Hall, who, despite me giving him grief, was not here in 1933 when this building opened. (laughs) He graduated right here on this campus in the University of Texas. He joined Texas Monthly in 1997 and has also written for the Austin American Statesman and the Austin Chronicle. In 2015, he was named CRMA Writer of the Year for his work, Murders at the Lake, which is a great piece. If if you can remember that, check it out. Uh, 2014, that piece came out. I read it. In addition to his journalistic chops, Mike is also an accomplished musician playing in a number of bands, including the Wild Seeds, rock star. And the only other thing I'll say, he profiled a certain cyclist in 2001, and I hated this man after that story. (laughs) (laughs) That's for another podcast. (laughs) But we're good now. Uh, Tony Plahetsky is, to my right, is a graduate. I didn't know this. From the University of Mississippi. Hotty toddy. (laughs) (laughs) he's held the position of investigative reporter for the austin american statesman in 2013 he also joined the tv world with a portion on uh, the defenders investigative team at kview austin's abc affiliate tony has covered just about every major story in austin since joining the statesman i've gotten to know tony a little uh following his work on the greg kelly case this is actually how all of this came about uh and i guess as a way of background i should say uh it is a little odd that I am on the stage, and I just want to get this out of the way, 
with three investigative reporters. If you would have told me 10 years ago, or if you would have told me after Mike Hall wrote that profile of me in 2001 that I would be on a stage with not just him, but two other people like him, I would have said, you are fucking crazy. So, um, and so the juxtaposition and the irony in their job and what the topic is today of innocence and guilt is, is, uh, is a little crazy. Um, but, but the true inspiration for this discussion really came from Michael Morton. And I followed the Michael Morton story, as did a lot of us here in Austin. Uh, it was uh, it, an unbelievable twist when he was ultimately freed, spent 25 or 26 years in prison. Uh, one of the lawyers who, who helped Michael Morton get out of prison was my friend Jerry Goldstein and, and works closely with the Innocence Project and Barry Sheck. Uh, I asked Jerry if I could reach out to Michael and have him on this podcast. So I drove to Tyler. And if you haven't, if you're a fan of the podcast, you might have listened to it. If you haven't, I'm telling you what he says for that hour will change your life. And so for me, that was sort of my introduction into their world. And not that I'm an investigative anything, um, but it, 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 the discussion with Michael Morton was so powerful for me, and we'll get into that, and Pamela has covered it extensively. Um, that, that, that inspiration led me to Tony, because as, as the Greg Kelly case is unfolding here in Austin, <clears throat> I, just, I just watched it and, and read about it as a, as, a, as a citizen of this great city, and it just, I, it, the, 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 the links are too strong. The case, the questions about the case, the police work, being in Williamson County, I thought, I gotta pay attention to this. And then I reached out to Tony, we had a conversation, we've had other follow-up meetings, and, I, and I've, I've just gotten invested in this case from a, just a personal standpoint. So that's how we all came to be here. Um, after Tony and I last met and talked about Greg Kelly, uh, you know, that led to the idea of this podcast, and then that grew to, to these other two great writers that have covered crazy, crazy cases. Carrie, uh, Carrie Max Cook that Mike Hall has covered. Obviously, Mike Morton, uh, Hannah Overton, these, these cases where people uh, did things, uh, uh, did not do things, but were punished for them. So let's start the discussion. I, I think right away, uh, because I feel, uh, and this is a question for all of y'all or whoever wants to take it, just reading about a Greg Kelly case, I get personally involved in that. And, if, and as I start to learn about it, I, 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 I form an opinion, I form a verdict. So, but I'm me, and I, and I get to do that. But as a writer and as somebody that's supposed to stay neutral, how do you not like a person or believe a person or, or vice versa? Well, I think sometimes you do, as a matter of fact, mm. like a person or, or believe a person you're, you're covering. But the reality is, as journalists, we are tasked with setting that aside and you know reporting the facts, be it through court documents or through court testimony, um, and and you know at least in my role um, working for a traditional newspaper, our job is to present the facts in as unbiased way as possible, and then let the public mm. the public decide. But that certainly doesn't mean that you know you're not having conversations with your closest confidants behind closed doors um you know expressing expressing a personal opinion i don't i don't think it's possible to really turn that off and that's true for any story be it an, uh, a 
criminal justice story or someone who has been, you know, the victim of a crime or, or lost their home in a natural disaster. I think we always, um, hopefully at least, have empathy for the people we are covering and, um, you know, express that to maybe them or to other people. But again, our work is to, to present and before, facts. Before, oh, Pam, I want you to, but before we go any further, I have to say, I, I believe, as, as the person who reads the story, I, I should go on the record and say, I believe that Greg Kelly did not do it. And I've said that, I've tweeted that, I've put it out there. Based on everything I've heard from Tony and read and, and studied, it's, and I just want to be transparent about this, I have said, free Greg Kelly. I, well, I think with the Kelly case, you know, there's still an investigation ongoing. But I think what uh, all these cases share in common is the original investigation was terrible. And that original investigation, sometimes you have a case that moves through the courts for 10, 20, 30 years, and it all goes back to what evidence was collected, what evidence was not collected, what um, biases did the investigators have, um, did they develop tunnel vision early on? Um, and going back to your question, Lance, I think uh, since I write a lot about confirmation bias, I try to be um, mindful of that when I'm writing myself because mm. I can be guilty of that as well. And if I start to believe one account that's very different than the public account, um, I have to remember to come back to the facts always and to talk to as many people as possible and leave my mind open to all possibilities. And there's also, there's the flip side when you have an innocent person, you're convinced they're innocent, but he's a terrible human being, you know, because like with Carrie Max Cook, I really like Carrie a lot. Carrie's been through a lot and he's a very likable person. And, you know, I had to get all sides of the story and I talked to the other side who's convinced that he's a monster, that this is all, that he's been, you know, pulling the celebrity trip but you know you you do everything you get all your facts and then you lay it out for the reader mm -hmm. to decide but there are also cases where you've got a, a guy there's a guy named michael blair who's on who was on death row for years and years and this guy was uh convicted of wrongfully convicted of murdering a little girl and while on he and dna eventually exonerated them but they kept him there because at a certain point he wrote a letter to his lawyer or to a journalist saying, well, I didn't do that, but I, I uh, raped a bunch of little girls. And hmm. that came out, and when he got off death row, they just moved him right over to general population. So yeah, he was an innocent guy, but he was just a horrible human being. Right. Thank goodness he's in prison for the rest of his life. But isn't it, and in the case of Carrie Max Cook, who was accused of murdering, brutally murdering uh, a woman in, in, in Tyler, Texas, Oddly enough, where Michael Morton lives today on a little quiet lake outside of Tyler. Um, a brutal murder. Michael Morton's wife was brutally murdered in, in Georgetown. These things were these, these in Georgetown, as we think of Georgetown as like Austin now. But back then, 30 years ago, Georgetown was this little sleepy town, as was Tyler. When it's that brutal, isn't it that the town and the people and the press just say, we have to get somebody? Because town is freaking out. We have to calm the situation down. I don't care if they did it or not. We got to get somebody. Yeah, there was definitely in that case in, in in Tyler a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure to this woman was it wasn't just a murder in a bar. She was 
mutilated. Mm. And so from that, they, I mean, they, they couldn't find anybody. They, they didn't find anybody. And then several months later, they got a psychological profile that said that the person who did this was a gay man who had anxiety problems and problems with his mother. And that became their, this, this, uh, the motif for who they were looking for. And then they bought they caught Carrie Max Cook, who was a bisexual man who had a lot of anxieties and problems with his mother, and he oh, became fit him to a T. Yeah, the, the, and the so profile the, yeah. from that point on, everything got piled on, and so Carrie, you know, wound up going through all of his trials. But it's like and we were talking about beforehand the Hadika Weiser murder here on UT campus. The UT campus. You know, freaked it's like out. a small town. Just, just like a small town, and something had to be done on that. And, and, you know, they did catch somebody. We'll find out whether they caught the right person. You know, we'll, we'll see what the, how, what the investigation reveals when they have the trial. But a lot of that happens, yeah, in a small town environment. And it, well, and it is a, a tricky balance. I mean, we all, as citizens of the world, want our law enforcement to act aggressively and expeditiously when there is a horrendous crime. It's a balancing act, though, sure. around, you know, focusing in early on someone and pursuing a case against that person versus maintaining an open mind and, and doing a full investigation. And, sure. and to Pam's point earlier, I think that's where mistakes can get made. Well, Pam, I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah. Anthony Graves in Somerville, Somerville, Texas. Like, and these, these, again, these crimes are so brutal. So I don't even know where Somerville is. But you imagine what those people thought well, and I think, let me jump back to Michael Morton for one second. First of all, I think it would be a mistake to think that these problems are specific to rural areas. Uh, Harris County, Travis County, Tarrant sure. County, I could go on and on, have uh, egregious cases on the book. So I think the pressure is pervasive on police to come up with answers quickly. Um, the, the Morton case, I think, is a perfect example. If, um, you know, here was this horrific killing of a woman at home in her bed, it was comforting to think in its own weird way that it was a domestic problem, that it was her husband. And that made, that made it go away when actually there really was an actual serial killer who was in the area who uh, killed another woman and, and did, well, may have done other things as well. Um, and I think that's where the lack of a good investigation at the beginning of a case is so horrible. It's not just the possibility of a wrongful conviction. It's that the person who did it is still out there. Mm -hmm. And in many of these cases, all of the ones we've just discussed, that they don't even look. I, I mean, in Carrie Max Cook, I mean, Robert Mayfield, who was probably the person, the the girl, the boyfriend of the girl who was murdered. Yeah, I mean, the way that I read that story, Mike. Is, it is so obvious that it's Robert Mayfield. And Robert Mayfield is just cruising down the highway today. He's an older guy, but they don't even, my point is that they don't even, uh, once they get that person, whether it is, again, Pam, a small town, a big town, they're like, okay, we got him. Yeah, I just like they did here on campus. And, and yeah. you know, not to pass that's the number one reason, you know, the cops generally do a pretty good job. Mm -hmm. Most criminals are pretty stupid, and most criminals leave behind a lot of crime scene evidence. So the cops generally, you know, get it. I don't know whether it's 80% or 90%, whatever. They do a great job. The problem is that in those, those gray area cases where they, 
where they've done the great job so much and they've found the, the suspect and it turns out to be guilty. And then they get in like in the Kerry case, they're so confident and they get this guy who seems to fit this profile. They don't really question that psychological profile. They don't really question other people uh, who knew Kerry, who would, you know, his alibis. They, and so before you know it, the, the police are, it's not because they're evil. They're, they think they're doing their job, but they're not doing their job well. Right. And that has been one of the chief criticisms in the Greg Kelly case, too, um, is that police seized on Greg Kelly very early on in a, in a child sexual assault investigation. The reason they said they did so was because a four-year-old victim alleged that Greg Kelly was the perpetrator. Um, but, you know, according to court testimony, and according to other evidence, I mean, we now know that the Cedar Park Police Department, the investigating agency in that case, did not identify other, other adults who were with the child. They did not go to the crime scene to serve a search warrant and try to obtain evidence that the child mentioned as part of the assault. And we don't know yet, officially, um, through a court proceeding, what the outcome of this Greg Kelly case is going to be. Um, there are strident people on both sides. But to Pam's point earlier, what is known is that there were gaps in the investigation. And according to his supporters, Greg Kelly supporters, who are very strident, um, it has put an innocent, innocent person behind well, bars. And the thing that struck me, and, and as background, because this, this podcast will go out around the world, so people are sitting there, they don't know where Georgetown is or who Greg Kelly is, but I was so struck by this case because Greg Kelly, for those who don't know, was living, his, his folks were not well. He moved in with his friend's family. The family ran a daycare out of the house where, where the four-year-old was allegedly molested. Um, or was molested. I, mean, I think we can agree that he, that he was molested. Um, the, and, and to me, when, when, when it runs in the paper and you see the picture of Greg Kelly and you see the, what's his friend's name that he moved in with? Jonathan McCarty. You see Jonathan McCarty and Greg Kelly side by side, they are literally twins. You, I, I saw this and I thought, and as I started to read, I was like, he's guilty. He's guilty of looking just like Jonathan McCarty. <laughs> so if you're a four-year-old, I, I don't remember what it was like to be a four-year-old, but it, it's, it's just too, they look exactly alike. Yeah, and, and it, that has certainly been a, a major point is <laughs> that, you know, the whole case in this particular instance rested on the testimony of a four-year-old who steadfastly, and, I, and I'm told to this day for that matter, still says that Greg Kelly is the perpetrator. But one of the things that we did as part of our body of work in this case is just looking at how often law enforcement and prosecutors bring forth a child sexual assault case that hinges on the testimony of a very, very young child. And the reality is, it's quite rare for mm. prosecutors to do that, but they certainly did in this case, and the jury convicted. But by the way, Jonathan McCarty has uh, confessed to this, a couple, or to friends, allegedly has confessed to other people. He's, he's you know, he's in jail on, on other unrelated, drug-related things. Um, but it, it, all of these things added up for me, Tony, that I, I, I don't think Greg Kelly did it. And I, I don't, I'm sure Greg Kelly's not perfect. None of us are, including me, clearly. Um, 
but I, I just don't think he did. All of these stories, they all end up, as, as I read as, for the last days, just been reading about these things, they all end up in the same place. Greg Kelly's ending up there. Kerry Max Cook ended up there. Anthony Graves ended up there. And that is the Court of Criminal Appeals. Like, this is, this is the Super Bowl for these people, right? So if, if they want to be freed, it can't just be, you know, that the judge says, okay, go ahead and go. It all has to go through the Court of Criminal Appeals. And I read a stat in one of these stories that our state's Court of Criminal Appeals has the lowest turnover or the lowest uh, whatever rate in, in the nation. It only, so only 3% of these cases get overturned. I mean, how powerful and, and credible is this, what is it, panel of 10 or 12 judges? And Mike has written extensively about the court, but also just to get to the Court of Criminal Appeals, which is sure. the court of last resort in Texas for criminal cases um, on what would be a, usually a writ of habeas corpus uh, is an arduous process in finding an attorney who will take your case and reinvestigate the case. I mean, these are all sort of unicorn type cases. And um, the Morton case, probably more so than any other because there's definitive evidence of what's called actual innocence. You know, we can guess at what may or may not have happened in the Kelly case or many other cases where there's a lot of gray area, but, but Michael had that un very unusual situation of having DNA, DNA that was actually preserved for 24 years, uh, DNA that was in good enough shape to test, that had enough alleles, as they call it, to uh, be put into a system called CODIS, and that this other perpetrator was in that database. I mean, all those things are stars aligning over and over and over again. So many people are caught in the system um, who don't have that. By the way, I talked to, I'd never met Pam before, and we talked two days ago, and I said, hey, what's up? And she said, I'm in Oklahoma at, at a forensics, a week-long forensics class. What? I, I thought if I was going to criticize the way that forensic investigations happen, that maybe I should know more about how they're supposed to be done. So. <laughs> right, right. It was, it was a very eye-opening experience. But it is true that the Court of Criminal Appeals is often very hostile, in fact, to these types of innocent claims. We've kind of done some of that work um, as well. And it is a very conservative court. The makeup has shifted somewhat in, in, in recent years. A little bit, but there are no pure defense. There, uh, everybody on there is a former district attorney. There are a few that did a little bit of time as defense attorneys, but most of those people, Kathy Cochran, uh, a couple of other ones who you might even call liberals in a state like Texas, uh, are gone now. So you do have, you have some guys who've been on that court since the 90s and they are very conservative people and they've the court I, I did a story on the court in 2004 and we called it the worst court in Texas hmm. and because they were so virulently pro-state and anti-defendant and I think at this point that they've gotten they've gotten worse. Oh, I mean, great! And if you if you look at the cases where they have um, issued a ruling of actual innocence, and I've kind of paid attention to this specifically with the Greg Kelly case, in almost all of those cases there has been physical evidence, mm -hmm. like in the Michael Morton case that was brought forward, or. Alternatively, a victim of a crime recants and says, you know, it didn't happen that way or I got it wrong. What's particularly frightening for Greg Kelly supporters is that in his case, 
there there is neither right. of those of those things in fact you know the victim has not recanted there there was no physical evidence to begin with and so they are largely hooking their their hopes on these other claims um including new inform new information and new evidence that was not known at and the time at the time of the trial say one more thing about the court of criminal appeals they actually do surprise people they uh, okayed the innocence recommendation for the san antonio four these four lesbian latinas who were convicted on the outrageous words of a couple of girls back in the 90s who said that they had raped them there was also some science uh hymen science that the uh the doctor filed an affidavit a couple of years ago saying well actually i got it wrong back then and one of the girls recanted but one girl still still held to this and the court of criminal appeals upheld the ruling of actual innocence so that was pretty fantastic wow. they're, they're not just ideologues purely they do have a spot where they they find for the defendant so we're it's 2017 right we're sitting here the evidence against well the evidence that sprung Michael Morton was DNA. DNA didn't exist when he was convicted and put in prison and sat there for 25 years. That developed, that technology developed, and, and that ultimately freed him. So you have that on one hand, and I'm going to get to my point. And on the other hand, I mean, the evidence against Greg Kelly is his phone. So in this day and age, we have our phones. Our phones know where we are. There's cameras Every, I mean, I think we'd all be shocked at how many cameras there are in our lives capturing every moment of of every day and and you know when you know when Kerry Max Cook was put in prison there wasn't cameras every so right. so technology is come coming along so that I guess in in a weird way it's gonna it's weird just to think that you're looked at every minute of every day but it's gonna ultimately help these people but not the, necessarily not necessarily because right in 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 Michael Morton's case the DNA was there but for six years the district attorney's office blocked testing. So he sat there for six years while there was physical evidence to exonerate him. And I think that's where um, maybe parts of our legal system have not caught up to the mm. technology. Um, it's remarkable how often DNA testing uh, is blocked in post-conviction cases. And um, I, I just, I've always had trouble understanding that. If you believe in your case and you believe your guy's guilty, why wouldn't you want DNA testing to, to bolster that? Right. And what, the other thing that struck me was uh, happened both in the Graves case and in the Cook case is evidence goes missing. I mean, when they go back to ultimately free these guys, they go look for They keep all this stuff. They go look for it. In, 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 the, in the Graves case, what, what, wasn't it like stuck in a jail cell that was welded shut? Yeah. I mean, let's just stick it over here and weld it shut. Nobody will look over here. Yeah. I mean, what... You're at the whim of whether the county kept the evidence or not, what condition it was kept in. A lot of it is kept, but it's, you know, not particularly stored very well. And, ag and again, one thing about that, too, is just sort of the mindset of law enforcement and the mindset of, of prosecution uh, of the state. One of the things that many people believe uh, has worked to Greg Kelly's favor is the fact that there is a new district attorney in Williamson County. He was elected um, last year, took office in January, and Greg Kelly supporters were saying to him during his campaign, will you give this case another look? You know, we've assembled all of this evidence. But I think that that is one thing that has, in fact, helped his case 
get another look. But a lot of a lot of times, as Pam and as we've as we pointed out, um, prosecutors are reluctant to acknowledge that their case may have had holes or that their case may have been may have been mistake a, mis- a mistake. And the Court of Criminal Appeals, aka the Last Chance Saloon, is not a guarantee if they say. If they overturn it, it still goes back to the DA or whatever, and they can choose to dismiss it, to, to, to contest it again. Mm. So the, it, the, it goes on for these folks. And it's not just the cops and the DAs and the Court of Criminal Appeals. Another big factor of this is defense lawyers. Mm. And a lot of the guys who are defending these cases, men and women, they're, they're getting out of law school, they don't have a lot of experience, and they're given these cases. Right. And they don't get paid a lot, they don't spend a lot of time on them because they're, they're busting their ass anyway, and then all of a sudden they're having to, you know, can I get $1,000 to go get an expert? Well, I don't have the money for it, the judge won't let me have it. So, I mean, the, the defense bar is often back on their heels. I mean, the state has all of the resources. They have all these cops. They have the social workers. They have the arson investigators. The defense lawyer sometimes in these cases is a you know, poor schmuck who just got out of law school yeah. and, and doesn't know enough to object, doesn't know enough you know, how, to, how to get experts in. And, and a lot of times when these guys complain about their poor lawyering, it's not just you know, uh, sour grapes. I mean, they really really mean it and these guys did a terrible job right mike you know i know this is going to come as no surprise to you but i I know what it's like to fight the government so you don't have to tell me about that (laughs) i know all about it limitless what is pam what is what does anthony graves do now so anthony graves he spent just perfect he spent anthony uh this is going back to the murder that happened in somerville and 18 years yeah he spent 18 years behind bars uh 12 of those years on death row in solitary. Um, and he uh, was released in 2010 and, and was formally exonerated in 2011. Um, he had two execution dates set before all of that happened. And it's a very long story how uh, that case finally got sorted out. But um, he now is pretty amazing uh, what he's been able to do given what he had to deal with for so long. He lives in Houston. He speaks all over the world. Uh, He has a book coming out next year about his story. uh, And he just is constantly out there um, both speaking to people about his story and being encouraging to others. uh, And he's just the most upbeat, sort of uplifting guy you'll ever meet. Um, I think what's interesting is that we want our exonerees, and here in Texas, we have a lot of them, um, to be like Anthony and to be like Michael, to be these totally well-adjusted, I forgive everybody, uh, I'm living this positive, productive life. We, we sort of need that narrative. Um, there are a lot of people who don't fit into that narrative and who have a very difficult time when they come out. I think a lot of that depends on family support and, and other things, but there's some really tragic cases, I think, uh, that we don't talk about as much. Right. It's easy. I mean, Michael Morton comes out. And, and by the way, he runs, his name keeps coming up because he runs through throughout all of these cases. He sort of feels like he's like the godfather of exonerees. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not because he wrote a great book and, and, and you know, and his story hits close to, he's, he was at Kerry Max Cook's trials mm-hmm. and he's been a supporter of Greg, like he's, 
He's, he has a law named after him. <laughs> he has a law named after him. A law that, that mandates that DAs have to do open discovery, turn over all their files, which they're supposed to do anyway. But now we have a much tougher law in the state of Texas, and uh, they named it after Michael Morton. The Michael Morton Act, which, by the way, I had a question about that, Mike. Because as I, I read about the Michael Morton Act, but then as you go back to these stories that were, were old, these are old stories, a lot of these. There's the Brady violation. So the, back in the day, you had the Brady. To me, the Brady violation, I read them, and I was like, that's the same thing, isn't it? The Brady violation says that you have ex exculpatory evidence. Yeah, that's what I mean. You're supposed to turn supposed over. supposed to. The, the prosecution is supposed to turn over everything but work product, their notes. And that's been around forever. But some DAs haven't done that. Uh, they've, they've taken a subjective point of view on what they should turn over. They'll say, well, we don't have to turn it over if it has nothing to do with guilt or innocence. They start to make their own choices. But Brady is, you're supposed to turn over anything potentially exculpatory. But, but, here, but, but here's then the difference. Brady, with, with Brady, the prosecutor gets to decide what's exculpatory. Exactly. Yeah. Gotcha. And they're not privy to all the details that the defense has. Um, whereas the Michael Morton Act they're simply required to hand over everything. They don't get to be the arbiters of what is handed over and what's not. And that makes a huge difference. As you can imagine, there are things that aren't gonna mean anything to the prosecutor that to the defense attorney is gonna be a huge aha moment. Yeah, because a lot of the things that are the big aha moments are the things that the prosecutors, eh, this isn't gonna make any difference, but the defense lawyers would love to have that. And the defense lawyers would never know that if, if they didn't know it existed and they don't know it existed. And by the way, you know, and, and Pam, I, I just wanna read this because the story on Texas Monthly about Anthony Graves, yes, he got out and yes, he was exonerated. And there's a long form piece, it took me forever to read it. Uh, it but at the, before the piece even started, it says, editor's note, on October 27, 2010, just a month after the publication of this story, the Burleson County DA's office dropped all murder charges against Anthony Graves and released him from the county jail where he was awaiting retrial. That's not because they flipped a, I mean, th th that's this story. It definitely helped. So I mean, that's... There was a, in that case, there was also a terrible initial investigation. I mean, colossally bad. Um, and there was uh, an amazing uh, professor in Houston named Nicole Caceres, who's my hero. And she investigated this case for almost a decade with her students. Um, and I was lucky enough to be able to sit with her and her students for five months, uh, and this is a very complicated case, and go through what they had discovered and retrace their steps, and all I did was tell the story of what they had discovered. They did the investigation. And that case, once you read the facts of the case, that there was no there there. Hmm. Um, and it was, it was a lucky enough circumstance that the district attorney's office, which was uh, headed up by a new person at that time, saw the wisdom in, in letting Anthony go. I don't think it's any, I mean, you take a, a journalist like yourself, a publication like Texas Monthly, and a piece that's so well-researched and well-detailed, that, that doesn't just happen. So, that's off to you. I was going to make a point, too, with regard to the degree to which people are able to move on with their lives in a positive way. You know, again, we all talk about and see, we've all interacted with Michael Morton and, you know, how he does seem to be this this very well-adjusted man who has been able to go on with his life. But one thing that is um, distinguishable about his case and some of the others 
and that many people don't have the benefit to, and that is they have been declared actually innocent. There are you know, countless other defendants out there who maybe have had their convictions overturned and they're released from prison on bond, but they are still going about their lives with their cases never having been retried. They're in sort of this limbo land it's where- It's a legal term. Actual innocence is an actual legal term. That's right, that's right. And just to define it, as I understand it, um, it means that no reasonable juror would would convict them. But there are other people there out there who have had their convictions overturned. Prosecutors may be determined not to retry them, but they don't have that benefit of actually having their name cleared. So that makes you know their lives obviously very challenging and very difficult. Yeah. When Kerry Max Cook got out of prison, he, and he wasn't, he moves to Dallas. Somebody, his neighbor, finds out or knows the story, and it's like hanging billboards or, or posters around the neighborhood like a, a, a convicted murderer is our neighbor. Yeah. Yeah, he was, he, if he got stopped by cops, he, Kerry went through three different murder trials and then finally did a, 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 an Alford plea before the fourth one, which is a no contest plea. And it basically allows him to say that he's innocent and allows the state to say, well, we would have found you guilty anyway. And so it still showed up on his record. So and from 1996 until he filed a habeas writ a couple of summers ago, he was a convicted murderer. If the right. police stopped him, right. and, and so he finally got the Innocence Project, and they put together a writ of habeas corpus, and they put together the evidence, uh, the, that it, some DNA evidence about the boyfriend of the girl from decades before, and he was actually able to get them to throw the conviction out but not the actual innocence. And, and that's exactly yeah. the problem. Now it's before the, the trial judge recommended not to grant the actual innocence. That's before the Court of Criminal Appeals, which will make the final determination. So you bring up the Innocence Project, and, and I love their work. And, and you also brought up the point that these guys are getting put away for life or to death by some young kid that they pay 500, their family you know, cashes in everything they have. They pay this kid you know, just out of law school, a thousand bucks, and he, he doesn't know, he's not there yet, right? So they, so they go away, and then all of, you know, 30 years later in Michael Morton's case, the Innocence Project comes along, which was founded by Barry Sheck, who's very, very, you know, if you went and hired Barry Sheck, it'd be a <laughs> thousand an hour, literally. Yeah. And so you have, but they donate all their time, they raise a ton of money, so guys like Barry Sheck, Jerry Goldstein, my personal friend, another, you know, top-level uh, defense lawyer in this state, volunteer all their time to get these guys freed. I mean, without them... It's pretty amazing because without them, there wouldn't be that resource there. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and we need more... I mean, what they're able to do, as amazing as they are, mm -hmm. is still very, very narrow given the, the need. Um, I, I did a story uh, back in the early 2000s on a guy named Ernest Willis who had been convicted of an arson uh, murder back in Pecos County in the 80s. And... Uh, he was there at the same time as Cameron Todd Willingham, who had also right. been convicted of an arson murder. Ernest got these New York lawyers who spent $3 million freeing him. Cameron Todd Willingham, who was eventually executed, had a, uh, uh, did not have that. He basically had a court-appointed appellate lawyer. Cameron Todd Willingham was executed. Ernest Willis was freed. And, and Cameron Todd Willingham was later declared innocent. So when I walked in today, no, no. Really. Unfortunately, it's I was on the. I was commonly on the believed, but has not been um, formalized in any way. 
So when I was when I walked in, I was on the phone with Jerry Goldstein, and he he was just as you guys noticed, I couldn't get a word in. And if you know Jerry Goldstein, you can't get a word. He's he's crazy, great great crazy. But he was going off on Karen Cameron Todd Willingham about how the state executed him, and according to Jerry, he he firmly believes that he didn't do it. I mean, think about that. A lot of people believe that. There's there's no evidence. There's no evidence that he did the crime. Wow. And but they had the opportunity to at least postpone the execution. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, he, uh, it was a real sci- a science thing, a, uh, an arson science thing that, that you know, like with Ernest Willis. Ernest Willis had lawyers who could pay for these scientists who came up and showed that the science used to convict him of this murder was kooky. Right. But both Cameron of them were arson cases, and both of them were based on the same bad yeah. arson science. So the parallel is, is it, The parallel goes right down the line, and one of them, because he had lawyers survived and the other because he didn't, you know, was executed. You know, in all these cases you have, um, and, and, and this is going to sound funny for me to say, but you have these people that cheat. And so in the Michael Morton case, you had, um, you had Ken Anderson. In the Anthony Graves case, you have Charles Sebesta. And so ultimately, I can attest, you, you get caught, these guys got caught cheating. And, it, and in one of your pieces, Mike, you, you, you straight up called it cheating. That's the first time I've followed this for years. It's the first time that I thought that Ken Anderson was a cheater, or Charles Sebesta was a cheater. Uh, but by doing the things that they've done, and, and, and with that comes pretty significant consequences uh, for them. I mean, in, in both of their cases. And I, and I think the third case, Kerry Max Cook, that's why he's so, it just, at the end of your story, it's, he's so angry still because the guys who put him there didn't get caught for cheating. And so, yeah, it's, and it still gets him yeah. really emotionally on this, this level. It takes him back to being like a little kid. It's like that when the little, the other kid in the game of fish cheats and you're just so mad about it. That's, that's what Carrie's like and, now. And, and, you know, I think the, the alarming thing too is that there is such a range. I mean, there can be this sort of willful cheating, obviously, that we have seen in some of these cases. But in other cases, maybe there was not sort of a willful intent, but you're dealing with people who may not be, um, frankly, very competent or have a lot of sophistication investigating major crimes. They may work for smaller agencies and just not have that level of sophistication that you see you know, from, a, from an Austin police department or a Dallas police department. And even sometimes, of course, as we pointed out, in big cities, you, you still see that. Um, that happening, but but it is one thing I think that alarms people. I don't think there's always malicious intent at all. I do think the adversarial way that a a trial happens and the way the process happens uh, doesn't always lead to to great results. But to your point about DAs being punished, um, again, these are unicorn cases. Sorry to keep using that word, but uh, the prosecutor in the Graves case and the prosecutor in the Morton case were both disbarred. That almost never happens. And that mm. happened because there was a lot of media attention on those cases. And I think the bar felt they had to do something. Uh, the bar has not been particularly aggressive about prosecutorial misconduct. And um, they've gotten better, but there's still uh, some room to grow, shall we say. What is Anthony Graves, because you've talked to him, you know, I'm sure you, uh, what, is his, what does he think about Charles Sebesta, the prosecutor who put him away, who's now been disbarred, which means basically banned for life from what, what he did forever. 
I think he had to get to a place of forgiveness with him mm. to move on with his life. Uh, because he told me that he could be free, but still be a prisoner of that and not actually be free of that hatred. Um, and so he has uh, publicly forgiven him. And, and um, I think the disbarment proceeding helped him a lot because uh, it showed that, the, that everyone was in agreement, um, not just that Anthony was innocent, but that a, a really grievous wrong had happened. And this was a district attorney who was in charge of a three-county area uh, for two decades. This was a high-profile guy. So it was, a, it was a big deal. As was Ken Anderson. Exactly. Michael Morton's prosecutor. So you know, there, were, there were a lot of people that when, when Michael Morton was freed and, and, and all of the acts of Ken Anderson were exposed, there were a lot of people that wanted and expected Ken Anderson to serve the rest of Michael Morton's life term. Think about that. And by that time, he wasn't the prosecutor anymore. He, he went on to be a prominent judge in Williamson County. Um, and Michael Morton being the man that he is, and, and again, if you have the time, listen to the podcast, uh, he said, he said I, don't, I don't want that. He said, I, I, I don't think he should be a lawyer, but I, I, don't want, um, I don't want him to be harmed financially. I don't want him to, to serve out. The, that would hurt his family. So that Michael Morton, you know, everybody set him up, not just the prosecutor, the coroner, the neighbor, the sheriff. And, uh, but he, he had, he had for, or has forgiven them. And, and a, a large theme, which it sounds like the same theme with Anthony, is these guys have learned to forgive those people. Carrie Max Cook, I don't know that he's there yet or ever will be there. Yeah. I mean, here, I'm going to read you the last paragraph of Mike Hall's story about Carrie Max Cook. And I'm just telling you, this is hard to read. Uh, you ask him, you're, you're talking about the, you know, he wants justice from the, the guys who put him in. Real quick, he had this hearing uh, a year and a half ago, and he was awarded uh, basically an exoneration. Uh, the Innocence Project got him this exoneration, but they had to, it's a lot of these cases, it's a negotiating thing. And they had to give something to get something, and they gave up the claim of prosecutorial misconduct for him to be exonerated. Right. And Kerry got so mad that he fired his lawyers and threatened to give his exoneration back. It's, it's, it's so unbelievable. He was really, really upset. And so he was trying to tell me on the, he kept telling it to me and it didn't really connect. And then he told it to me in this way. He says, he took a breath and in graphic detail launched into a description of the sexual abuse he had suffered on death row. And I asked Michael Morton about when you watch, sorry to interrupt, but you watch movies, you, you think that's, that's what happens. Michael Morton has a very different version of what the politics of prison life is like. Anyways, Michael, I did what I had to in prison to survive. Those guys were crazy, morally bankrupt from their psychoses. I was scared to death. I knew if they killed me, my mom, my dad, my brother would, li would live in infamy. I gave those men my body to protect my mind. Some of the other inmates would tell me, you could make it stop, just stab that dude. But I couldn't. That would have been all the proof Smith County needed that I was a vicious killer. So I let it happen over and over. It was so the truth, it was so the truth would come out in a courtroom someday so I'd finally be free, so I could restore what I gave up, restore my sense of manhood. I knew if I could survive and get out, I could tell my story, tell the truth about everything, show the whole world that the case was made up. There was nothing left but the truth. He finished and then paused. By God, I gave up everything to preserve the truth. Yeah. That's what prison life was like for, for Kerry Max Cook. Yeah. He, was, he was terribly brutalized his whole time there. He was a, not a particularly big and strong guy and did not fight back and was just brutalized. And 
that just goes into his whole equation of of why he wants this actual innocence and you know he wants to be like michael morton he wants to be like anthony graves and um but he just he at this point i i don't know that that's going to happen well and and carrie should be commended for how candid he was about what happened to him because it happens to a lot of people yeah. it's not something that people talk about um, and it's not part of the exoneree narrative, but it is a fact of life for, for some people. Yeah. yeah. How, does this work, line of work, call it a line of work, does it ever feel dangerous? Like, like I mean, when I say dangerous, I don't mean like, I mean dangerous. I mean with a capital D? Yeah. <laughs> All um, caps. <laughs> it, sh yeah, I think so. I mean, I've, I've certainly, a diff I mean, I don't know with a capital D, but certainly I think with a lowercase um, D, yeah, there are people who, um, no matter what uh, topic you're covering, um, but I think we all, from time to time, uh, choose topics, gravitate to topics that uh, deserve exploration, but that by nature of them, uh, by, by their nature, are deeply polarizing to people. And I'm just going to say it, and I don't know if you experience it the same way, but unfortunately we are living in an era where beating up the press, attacking the press, tweeting about the press in negative ways um, seems to be the, the fun thing to do. And I use that term obviously very loosely, but I, but I personally have noticed an uptick in recent months with people feeling um, more compelled to write um, you know, nasty things. And sometimes in those emails, there are vague and sometimes less vague uh, threats. I don't know about Mike and Pam, but that's what I experience. Pam? I have some good off-the-record stories I can tell you about. Uh, okay, everybody, we're off the record. Some, we're off the record. In, in one case, the uh, son of a prosecutor who I had written about uh, had some very choice language and, and words for me, but I've never felt in danger. Gotcha. Um, I, I would say that what I do think is dangerous is a criminal justice system that doesn't work properly and that we're all could be all captive of. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, not to be too dramatic, I think there are many, many, and I wish I had said this earlier, wonderful, committed prosecutors, uh, people in law mm. enforcement, you name it, um, but it's the people who don't do their jobs properly who are a danger to all of us. Yeah. I will say one time, I did a story on a guy named Richard LaFuente, who was a half Mexican-American, half Sioux Indian, who went up to a reservation in North Dakota in the early 80s and was basically framed with 10 other guys for a murder that was actually just a dead cop. Uh, all, everybody else was freed. Richard wound up staying in federal prison. They never admitted guilt, and so he stayed in until two years ago when he finally got out. But I went up there to do uh, to do reporting. I got I spent a whole week on this reservation up in North Dakota, and there was this one day I uh, I had a guide who had been one of the original ten, and he he was uh, everybody knew that I was there. Every because a res is like a really small community. 
everybody knew some guy had come up, some white guy had come up from Texas. And so everywhere we go, people would look at me and give me the stink eye. And on the second to last day, we were driving out trying to, you know, because we were, this guy's name is Dwayne. He was taking me to all these places. And we were way out on this reservation. You wouldn't see anybody for 10, 15 minutes. And I was driving, and I noticed this car that was following us. And, you know, I've seen enough movies about, you know, you know, Leonard Peltier and all the crazy things that happen on Indian reservations, because they are, they're a separate country. They're, they have their own rules. And this guy was following us and following us, and I said, I'm not gonna be a baby, I'm not gonna say anything. And I finally, I said something to Dwayne, and he said, I'm watching him too. <laughs> oh, wow. And the two of us, we were like, what the, what the hell are we gonna do? We were in the middle of nowhere, and I'd been reading all these stories about these previous murders on this reservation and you know it was just a terrible thing this went on for like 10 minutes and finally the guy turned off and both of us were just like we freaked out yeah i bet i mean the 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 phrase kill the messenger though is like a legit thing i mean sometimes people do just kind of paper on to reporters and journalists covering the story their their anger their emotion it's not fair but it is a reality so two things before we get to the questions from from the audience who is sitting either in prison or death row whatever right now that needs one of you three there has i mean obviously there's what's our next one i'm really interested in forensic science right now and i don't want to say too much about what i'm working on but uh (laughs) I think that there are things that we are conditioned to um, take at face value thanks to CSI and the way that evidence is used in the courts that are much grayer and more complex than we realize. Um, And so there are multiple cases that 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 affects. Mm. Um, I'm I'm very interested in cases where people have gotten life without parole. Uh, If you're sentenced to death, you have more opportunities to appeal your conviction. If you get life without parole, it's a a shorter, you have fewer options. And those cases aren't the cases that get the attention, um, that get media looking at them. And um, those are just two thoughts of mine. I don't know what you all think. I get letters every week from inmates in Texas who are basically convicted of what Greg Kelly was convicted of, the uncorroborated words of a child, no physical evidence, and uh, it's just heartbreaking. These guys, it's basically the same thing. Um, and, you know, juries believe it, and so these guys get sent away for, for the rest of their lives. I mean, there's so many of these, I don't even know what to do with them all. Yeah, and I think it's hard for, it, it can be hard, and I think we all, we'll all agree, that, to decide which story to go after, because yeah. the reality is, Many people in prison say they are innocent, and I know we all get the. I mean, I get a stack of literally a yeah. stack of of jail you know, mail is hand handwritten. Even jail I get mails. jail mail. Yeah, every every week. Probably get more now after this from people who, um, you know, want us to take up their case. One of the reasons I gravitated to covering the Greg Kelly case is that it was just so polarizing and and you know, something that our community was deeply engaged in at the time of his trial in 2014, and then with this new information. So it was it was sort of a natural fit to go to that case. But who knows how many other cases there are like there like that out there. 
So last thing before the questions, and, and both Mike and Pam mentioned this to me separately, is that Texas is actually leading the way, believe it or not, in penal code reform. And Pam, I think you made a comment that anytime you're traveling to New York or to Chicago or LA and you say that to people that Texas is leading the way, you know, it, it, the, it's just a look of disbelief. No, it's really true. I mean, from the Michael Morton Act to the Tim Cole Act to the, the recent legislature basically outlawed snitch testimony. They changed the, the ways that we do eyewitness lineups. These are things that places Access, in, in access to DNA testing. Uh, yeah, the DNA um, testing. Texas is junk, way ahead of everybody junk else. Junk science writs. I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but inmates in Texas have so many avenues that inmates elsewhere do not <laughs> to try to get their cases heard. We've talked about many of the impediments to that, mm -hmm. but it's, it's pretty remarkable how much the legislature has done in the past decade. Um, there's also the Texas Forensic Science Commission, which is mm -hmm. doing some incredible work, uh, and they have changed the way that uh, arson investigations now happen after the Willingham case, which we talked about. Uh, also bite mark evidence they have discredited and they're looking at a number of other um, uh, things as well. And the big takeaway from that for me is that, you know, for the most part, the people in charge of the criminal justice system are politicians, the judges and district attorneys. And Texas has had a lot of problems with the criminal justice system over the last 20, 30 years. And what's happened is, because there's been such a hue and cry from journalists, from politicians, from family members, the judges and the district attorneys listen to that. And there has been an incredible, and the, the legislators, an incredible uh, move to change these things where uh, conservative governors like Rick Perry, conservative judges like uh, uh, Kathy Cochran, they have gone and they have change things in ways that hasn't happened in other states. I mean, the, the, the response of them to all this, this bad news has been to try to make things better. But that's my, yeah, that is my, that's my takeaway too, is that if, if you don't have a Michael Morton walking the halls of, of the Capitol and going door to door mm -hmm. and, and, and making the case as an advocate or Anthony Graves or whoever is, it, it, in a previous life, I, I worked a lot on cancer and, and the, the deadliest cancer you could get is lung cancer or pancreatic cancer. Well, guess which two diseases get the least funding? Those two, mm -hmm. because nobody lives. So nobody can go walk the halls. So if they don't get freed up, and, and if Michael Morton's not who he is, then nobody knows, and, and perhaps that change doesn't happen. But I think it's, it's eerily similar between, between those two. Yeah. Well, also, if the conservative ideal is personal freedom and a lack of government intrusion on your life, if you're a conservative... Uh, politician, then this is a great issue, you know, making sure that your criminal justice system works. Um, those things go hand in hand. I don't think it's an issue for the left anymore. And the Tea Party here has been very active in um, trying to reduce our prison population and some other things. So I, I always tell people, at least here, if you take what the Tea Party is saying about criminal justice and the lefties, they sort of meet in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, and no one believes me, but it's actually true. It's true. Hmm. Yeah. Speaking of the Tea Party, uh, I would like to thank Evan Smith for scheduling uh, Beto Rourke, who's running against Ted Cruz, at the very same time that we were going to have this discussion. Thank you, Evan. Do we have any? <laughs> Otherwise, this room would be packed. I guarantee it. Um, any questions out there? Can you, do you, will you sit in the mic? Yeah, thanks. 
I'm Raleigh Cole. The, um, a lot of talk here about false positives, the, the innocent are declared guilty. Are you guys doing any writing or seeing any development in the false negatives? And I'm thinking of all the unexamined rape kits and, and you know, if there is, if the innocent is in jail, there's a guilty out there somewhere if the crime was real. So are you writing about that or someone else? doing on the false negatives. Do you want to talk about the Austin crime well, I, lab? Yeah. I was going to. <laughs> yes. I, I, I mean, Austin uh, specifically, there is a big effort underway and has been underway since last fall when information came to light concerning the operation of the Austin Police Crime Lab. Um, a lot of interesting things that I learned as part of that, you know, for a very long time, APD was standing behind the work of the crime lab and saying that they, well, we are nationally accredited. Well, now one of the things we know about the accreditation process is that they come in and say, do you have policies and procedures and, and you know, rules in place? And, you know, yes, yes, yes. Well, here's your national certification. And what we're what we've learned since then is that there's not actually they're not actually drilling down into the science. So Austin Police last year, last fall, last December, closed very abruptly their their forensics lab, which tests DNA evidence. And there is a major effort underway by both Travis County prosecutors and police, really headed though by the district attorney's office, to try to figure all of that out, whether or not there is someone who is wrongfully convicted because of improper testing from the Austin Police Crime Lab. That answer is not yet known, but they are obviously researching it. Well, and Tony will know this better than me, but I think the number of untested rape kits uh, in Austin was something like 800 uh, rape kits. I, I hope I have that number right. It was a large number. I gasped when it I is, read the yeah, number. Yeah, it I is a large that. number. And you think about what that means for public safety. Um, it's just shocking. And uh, at one point, the electricity went out at the uh, where these things were the stored. Freezer. The freezer. Yeah. The freezer. And we don't even know how many days these uh, rape kits were not well stored. And, and obviously, the operation of forensic facilities is an issue that has been ongoing really the past decade and, and one that there I know is a lot of conversation about even within the industry about whether or not the cops should be the ones operating as they have been these types of facilities or whether or not they should be done by an outside entity. That's one of the big conversations going on right now in Austin and Travis County. And Mike, this meets, you, you mentioned this earlier, I mean the murder that, that happened just a few hundred yards from here I think you, maybe you mentioned to me backstage that the, the, that it meets right here with the Austin Crime Lab, but that yeah. there's now some... Yeah, apparently that, the, the case, this case has been implicated in that, and so the case has been pushed back a little bit further. Right. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Right, then one more back here. I'm Kim Ogg. I'm the elected district attorney in Harris County recently, and I've come into office in January, this January. The Texas uh, law defines our role as prosecutors uh, as not just to convict, uh, that our duty is not just to convict, but to see that justice is done. But you journalists know that um, doing the right thing, which is how it's been loosely defined, uh, is uh, different to different people. 
And so what objective terminology would you use to describe our role in the justice system? I don't know the answer to your question, but I'm very happy you're here, so it's nice to see you. <laughs> yeah. I, what, we did have this conversation, though, right before we came on stage, and the investigator in the Greg Kelly case, the chief investigator who was testifying as part of a writ hearing uh, the first week of August, it was a draw, dr jaw-dropping moment for many people because he took the stand and was asked very early on in his testimony, how do you, um, what is the goal of a police investigation? What is the goal of a law enforcement investigation? And the first words out of his mouth were a successful prosecution. And that was very striking, I think, to many people in that courtroom that day. And people are still, frankly, talking about it because I think there is a lot of disagreement about how a police officer should answer that question. And you hear prosecutors like yourself, um, I can assume you would say, well, our job is to seek justice and to find the truth. But that apparently is not a universally shared sentiment. I would love to, th you've done amazing work and have really reversed um, in some ways the mindset that was in Harris County for so long, the win at all costs mentality. Um, the crime lab there is really, I think, a model for the country uh, because it's not under the police department. Um, I, would, I would love to hear from prosecutors as well what, what, what the correct way is to define that. Um, but I always go back to the beginning of, of the code that you quoted that, that says it right there. And that's like the one you know, positive attribute, that's what you do. And then, like, we're always finding the things that you guys don't do, you know, <laughs> that you don't share the right files, that, you know, you, you, you shadow somebody or, you know, figure out that somebody did this when you're not looking at the other, the other things. But it's, all, yeah, you're right. It always comes back to that, to seek justice. But, of course, that's to two different people. That's two different things. Well, I think you as journalists are dedicated to getting at the truth. And I believe that that's perhaps a more objective way of describing uh, seeking justice. And that's, that's as far as I've gotten. I'll report uh, when I know more. But I would say seeking the truth is probably the most important thing that we do. Any more? OK. I think that does it. Pam, thank you. Mike, thank you. Tony, thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for coming out. Thank you for thank tuning you. in. If you, if you download this on iTunes or SoundCloud or Google Play, um, thanks for tuning in to The Forward. Thanks for tuning in to The Forward Podcast. Like, uh, like I said at the top of the show, if you have anything you want to say, if you have a suggestion, please. God knows I need suggestions. Um, or questions, or concerns, or criticisms, or whatever. Let me know. Send me an email. Send it to theforwardpodcast at wedosport.com. I know it's long. I know it's a little confusing. Theforwardpodcast at wedo, W-E-D-U, sport, singular, Dot com, the forward podcast at we do sport.com. 